Uh, well, welcome here today. If you're new, uh, glad that you're joining us. My name is Jonathan. I'm the lead pastor here. If you're back after a summer away, uh, glad that you're back. And if you've been here all summer, glad that you're back again today. Uh, just good to have you here. You know, this week it's kind of back on again, isn't it? I mean, school is back on. Summer's kind of over. In my house, everybody goes to school, all three of my kids, and my wife is a teacher. Uh, so that means that all of them are up and going to school, which kind of makes me feel good because over the summer when I begin to go to, up to go to work in the morning, they're just kind of lounging around. And so it feels kind of nice that they're getting up now. Now the only one who's still lounging around the house all day is the dog. Uh, but he's been doing that for 10 years, and I think he'll uh, just keep doing that for the rest of his days. Uh, I hope that you had a great summer. I hope that it was just a, a rich, enjoyable summer. And I wonder, though, if I were to ask you, you know, what was the highlight? What, what was the thing in your summer that was just kind of th this pivotal moment, this beautiful moment, this thing that maybe exceeded your expectations? Maybe it was a, a place that you went or an event that happened or, or an experience that you had. I mean, if you were to say that, what, I mean, what would that be for you? Now, some of you, you don't need to tell me because... Uh, you posted about it. I saw, I mean, in, in gory detail, everything, every, I mean, even down to the food that you ate every day. I mean, I saw it all. Uh, but, uh, but others of you, you know, you're more quiet about those things. And it would be if I were to sit down and, and to begin to ask you some questions and, and, and about what it was, you know, it wouldn't take you long. And you just quietly begin to explain, this is what we did. And this is how come it was so rich. And and I bet you'll be definitely more quiet than some others, but it would be reflective and meaningful for you. And it'd be the kind of thing you said, this was, this was just so rich for us this summer. You know, for Newell and I, we had a pretty epic summer. It was uh, uh, amazing on a, a number of different ways. Uh, but when I think back about it, one of the things that was just, just a highlight for us was really epic is that we got to go to Malibu. Now, not Malibu, California. We're not doing those kinds of things. Uh, rather, uh, we went to a retreat at a place called uh, Malibu, which is, a, which is a Christian camp run by Young Life up the coast of BC. It's on the Jervis Inlet. You have to take a boat for a couple hours to get there. And, um, and I tell you, that the place was stunning. It was just surrounded by these mountains and this, this, this sort of little retreat in the middle of it all. I think I have a picture here to show you of it. Yeah, here it is. The, the picture hardly does it justice. But like nestled here in the midst of these, these mountains is this, uh, this is just gorgeous retreat. And, and if you ask me about it, I mean, you could just get me going. I mean, I, I tell you all, all about it. Uh, you know, there's this dining hall that is all glass on every side. And there's just mountains and water everywhere you look. And, and there's this swimming pool that's like right where the, the water flows into this other inlet and it, and it speeds by and it's just so beautiful. And, and then there's this coffee shop that's got all this wood and it feels cozy and warm and west coasty. And, and then there's the, the, the place where the water sports are and, and you can jump into the water and do these different things. And, and then I would tell you about this moment that I got to go water skiing on the ocean. And I mean, it was, it was like glass. And I can still feel the water, just warm water coming up on my feet as I sailed along and these, the mountains on either side. I mean, it was, it was a magical thing. And I loved every minute about it. And <clears throat> it was just this amazing place. And, and I'll bet you had an experience like that too, or an event or a place that you went. And, and, and if you were to talk about it, it would just begin to sort of spill out of you. You'd be like, well, then we did this and, and, and that happened. And, and you know, if you're the more excitable person, you might come to me and say, I got to tell you about this thing. And, and if you're more quiet, 
Probably not. But if I asked you, if I got you going, you'd be like, yeah, this is what we did. And, and it was just so rich. You know, this fall, we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to look at the opening chapters of the Gospel of John. And the opening chapters of the Gospel of John are kind of like that. There's this sort of excitement, there's this enthusiasm that kind of grows, uh, flows out of it. It's, the, the Gospel of John, is, of course, is the account that, that the Apostle John has that he gives us of, of his experiences with Jesus, of what he, he saw and heard and what Jesus did. And there's just this, this thing that kind of flows out of him. And in fact, if you read the opening chapter, he, he begins by saying that the time that he spent with Jesus, he realized that that with Jesus, he was with God himself. God himself in the flesh. He stood in his presence. He could touch him. It was God himself. And there's just this enthusiasm. And, and, and he can't help but tell about it, about the things that Jesus did and that he said and that he taught and then about his death and then about this startling, highly unexpected thing that happened. Jesus rises from the grave and, and he comes back to life. And, and, and it his, his account of Jesus' life ends this way. At the very last words of the Gospel of John, he says this. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. I mean, he just says, look, there, there, there's, uh, you know, it's like me telling you about Malibu. Like, we did this, we did this, we did this. And I could tell you all the more about it, but, but I probably should stop here. That's what he says about Jesus. There's this this excitement and enthusiasm that just kind of flows over in it. And just before that, the chapter before that, he explains why he writes all this down. And here's, here's what he writes. He says this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John, John writes at the... Uh, uh, he says, the reason I write the gospel, this biography of Jesus is so that you might believe in him and that you might have life in his name. You know, whatever you saw, whatever you experienced this summer, whatever the highlight was for you, I'll bet you it, it was a beautiful thing. It was profound. Maybe it changed a little bit about how you think about life. But John says, oh, no, this, what I'm telling you about, I mean, that changes people's entire lives. In fact, he says, what I have to tell you about changes the course of human history. This is God who came in the flesh, who lived among us, who, who changed people's hearts and brought healing into people's lives and, and hope and peace and, and, and deep-seated joy for people and, and who took away the sting of death and, and who gives deep meaning and purpose in people's lives. John is saying, like, you've got to hear about this thing. You've you got to understand what, what I saw. And it isn't just John who has that kind of overflowing enthusiasm. The early church also had this kind of idea when they talked about Jesus. In fact, uh, Michael Green, a church historian and, and scholar, studied the, the, the first 200 years of the, of the Christian movement, of, of the Jesus movement, so to speak. And, and he writes this, he says this, that, that the Christians shared the news of Jesus like it was gossip over the backyard fence. They talked like it was gossip over the backyard fence. And I love that idea. It was gossip that they shared over the backyard fence. You know how that is. I mean, it's a little bit like me. If you get me talking about Malibu, it's not gossip, but it's kind of like it just, it just kind of spills out. Like, I got to tell you about this. And then that happened and this happened. And, and, and did you hear? And, and let me tell you this story. And, and that's how the early Christians 
talked about Jesus. They, they didn't write a tract and stand on the corner and sort of hand it out to random strangers. They didn't prepare a, you know, a three-minute presentation of, of the gospel that they memorized and practiced and then sort of sat someone down and tried to get all three minutes out before they, they lost their attention. They didn't sort of trudge out, feel like, oh, I got to share my faith today. No, they gossiped it. It just kind of rolled out of them and spilled out of them like, you got to know, you, you should hear about this kind of a thing. And, and, and that's how it was for the early Christians. God had come. And not, not from a great distance, but uh, he dwelt among them and he lived among them and he changed their lives and he changed the lives of the people around them. And he's changing the world. And I want to propose to you that this fall that we should gossip the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, we, we, should, we should just allow it to, to kind of spill out in a little story here and in a, in a conversation there and a comment here. And did you hear about that there? And it, just in the midst of all of the other interesting things that we talk about every day here and there, it should just kind of come out like, like gossip does. And... Um, the thing, though, about that is that, you know, when we get talking publicly about faith in our world these days, that can feel a little daunting, can't it? Right? I mean, there's this sense that, uh, you know, faith isn't an easy thing to talk about. People don't necessarily appreciate that so much. In fact, there's this growing sense in our culture, and maybe you've thought it or experienced it, that somehow, you know, kind of religion is on the decline. And Christianity in particular, at one point it was sort of the thing, a big thing. But now as we, as we grow in, in, you know, as we become more modern, as we grow in our education and in, in understanding science and all that, 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 that faith and religion is kind of waning and it's kind of not really something that really we should be talking about. The thing about that, though, is it simply isn't the case, at least not according to the scientific data. A number of years ago, a few years ago, there was a, a massive research done by a, a group called the Pew Research Center. Uh, and after it, the, the Washington Post ran an article with a headline that said this, the world is expected to become more religious, not less. And that, and that article went on to state that while in North America and Europe, the number of people who are unaffiliated with faith or no longer affiliated with any kind of religion is growing for the moment, the data shows, the, the vast amount of data shows that religion is growing strong and steady. In fact, it turns out that in the coming decades, Christians and Muslims, again, this is a secular study, but Christians and Muslims will make up an increasing percentage of the world's population. And those who are secular, who have no faith at all, that portion of the population will continue to shrink. In fact, this is widely accepted among sociologists today. Uh, sociologist uh, Peter Berger and Grace Davey report that most sociologists of religion now agree that the secularization thesis, the, the secularization thesis is this, this thesis that as, as a culture becomes more modernized, more educated, more scientific, that they will abandon faith and abandon religion. That's the secularization thesis. They write that, that most sociologists of religion now agree that the secularization thesis has been empirically shown to be false. It simply isn't true. 
In fact, in this article that the Washington Post wrote, they quoted another, uh, another uh, professor, Jack Goldstone, professor of public policy at George Mason University. He says this, sociologists jumped the gun when they said that the growth of modernization would bring a growth of secularization and unbelief. That's not what we're seeing. People, he says, need religion. In fact, one of the most startling conclusions that these sociologists and demographers have come to is that in this century, the one that we're living in right now, there will be more people who hold to some sort of faith or religion than there was in all of the previous century. The group that is going to shrink is going to be that which is more secular and that is sort of what we would call liberal religious beliefs. And again, another, uh, another uh, study by the, uh, or in another book by a guy named Eric Kaufman, uh, University of London professor. His, he wrote this book called Shall the Religious Inherit the Earth? And he speaks of what he calls the crisis of secularism. And he says that it is inevitable that secularism and liberal religion are going to decline in the coming years. Which is fascinating. You know, we hear a lot these days about the nuns. This uh, growing group of people who, when they are asked to identify their religious affiliation, check off none. And that group is growing. But when you dig deeper into the, into the statistics, it turns out that the people who are choosing to be nuns are those who primarily have what sociologists call an inherited faith. In other words, they're those who have a faith because their parents had it or based on their ethnicity. So, you know, if you're an Indian, you're automatically a Hindu. If you're Norwegian, you're automatically Lutheran. If you're Polish, you're automatically Catholic. If you're, you know, from the southern part of the United States, you're automatically Southern Baptist. That group is increasingly checking none when it comes to faith. But what's not declining in modern societies is chosen religion. Faith based not on ethnicity or solely on upbringing, but rather on a personal decision. That's in no decline. Why? Well, because, I mean, the sociologists have a number of different reasons for that. But, but ultimately, it's because there's God out there. And, 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 and there's this need in our lives because of the way he created us to have him in our life. And people aren't, aren't foolish. They're open to that kind of a thing. And on top of that, the Christian faith. The Christian faith turns out to be a better, stronger, more coherent worldview than the other options that are available out there when it comes to understanding life. You know, it's interesting. If you read in the book of Acts, it's the story of the early church. In Acts 17, the Apostle Paul uh, goes to the city of Athens. And there he meets these guys. He begins his conversation about, about faith in God and about who Jesus was. And they invite him to come and speak at a place called the area. Uh, Oh, I always get this wrong. The Areopagus. They, get it, they invite him to the Areopagus, which is also sometimes referred to as Mars Hill. And this summer, I told you we had an epic summer. This summer, Newell and I also had the opportunity to go to Athens and to see this place. And I want to show you where this thing is because it, it helps give a context for what Paul did there. So if you go there, this shows uh, sort of the heart of Athens. You can see the picture here. And here at the bottom part of this picture, on the left here, if you zoom in, this area right here, this is where democracy was born. This is the, this is the birthplace of democracy, which is so huge in our world. Right here, this is the political center of all of Greece in that day. It was powerful and, and heavy 
you know, thinking about politics and all that. That's right here. Then if you go up to the very top of the hill, up here is the Parthenon. You know this. It's world famous. And the Parthenon is this temple that was built to the goddess Athena. And man, if you get up close to that thing, I mean, it is impressive. It is, it is incredible. And it is dedicated to Athena, the god of Athens, who gave them victory over everything. And between this, this, this mighty you know, temple on the hill and this incredible place of, of um, government policy in between is this little place over here. Uh, it's just off to the right. This is the Areopagus. Oh man, I can't get that right. It's Mars Hill. This is the place that the Apostle Paul went. And back in their day, there was some buildings on there. And, and it was a place where the Greeks would debate philosophy. But you have to remember the kind of history that the, the Greeks have when it comes to philosophy. I mean, they're de debating Aristotle and Plato and Socrates and many others. This is heavy duty philosophy. But when you stand on that little rock, I mean, the picture doesn't do it justice, but when you stand on that little rock, the Parthenon dwarfs it. I mean, the, the message is unmistakable there that, that this, the goddess Athena, the, the Greek gods are in control of the, of the trajectory of the history of Greece, of what happens, and all the power and all the might and all the, all the beauty is there. And when you look down, there's this place where this Greek politics and power and democracy come from and on this little hill into this place steps the apostle Paul one man coming with this message of a Jewish rabbi and carpenter who lived this life and then who died and then who rose again and if you read the account in Acts 17 he stands on that little hill in the midst of these immense sort of symbols of power and he simply shares the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not with guns blazing, but neither with fear or trepidation. He just lays it out. Because he knows that philosophically, the Christian faith is solid. It can stand in the face of any kind of debate. But also because he knows that it is simply true. That Jesus lived and died and that he rose again. And he presents it. And then he steps back and they have this big debate. And, and some people say, that's foolishness. We don't believe it. But others believed. But their trust in Christ. The fascinating thing is if you travel through Greece today, you can still see temples to Athena and the other Greek gods, but they're all in ruins. They're, they're all simply tourist attractions. But in every village and in every town and in every city and neighborhood dotted throughout Greece are hundreds and thousands of churches where people have gathered for thousands of years to worship Jesus. To, to come before him. You see, you, me, we together, I mean, we should gossip the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because... Even though in our world there's this sort of push back against it, the fact of the matter is the faith that we have, the, the worldview that it brings us, the, the fact of Jesus' life and death and resurrection can withstand any of the pressures of the world around us today, any of the questions that are out there. In fact, even at the highest philosophical levels these days, those who are far from 
what would you consider Christians, are acknowledging the power and the beauty of Christianity. Ezra Klein, who, writes, uh, an, who wrote an op-ed in the New York Times, who would not even come close to identifying himself as a Christian, who is a, a liberal humanist of the highest degree. He writes about the, the strange but beautiful attractiveness of Christianity and the fact that it cannot be ignored because of what it is and what it says and what it teaches. You see, no matter who they are, no matter where they are, our faith and what Jesus has done is the kind of thing that can withstand and should be shared in this world. Which means that we need to, we need to go out in the marketplace. We need, to, we need to go out and to share, to gossip the good news of Jesus with us wherever we find ourselves. That's important to do because you see, among among the religious crowd, among those who, you know, follow God, there's a tendency sometimes to withdraw from that kind of a setting, to say it's too dangerous, it's too hostile. Uh, you know, we, we don't want to be there or, or worse yet to become disdainful of it, to look down and to say, you know what? We're better than that. We, that, that place is corrupt. It's not, it's not worthy of us kind of going there. There's a danger for that to happen among the religious crowd. In fact, there's this fascinating sort of two accounts in, in Mark's gospel about this. One that accounts, it gives us an account of how the religious people see the marketplace and the other about how Jesus sees the marketplace. And let me read them for you because it's fascinating to compare. The first is the religious crowd. Here's, here's what Mark writes. The Pharisees, that's the super religious crowd, and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And then he has this parenthesis. He explains. He says, The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the, to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. See, here's, here's what Mark notes. He says, When the Pharisees, when the super religious people, when they go to the marketplace, when they come back, they won't have any food unless they wash their hands. But that, that's not about hygiene at all. Rather, it's a ceremonial thing. It's their way of saying, you know, we've been out in the marketplace among the corrupt and the dirty and the messy and those who aren't religious. And before we kind of sit down together and enjoy a meal among our safe, kind of religious, controlled crowd, we're going to wash our hands of all of that stuff. And it's possible for the religious crowd to take on that thing. That out there in the marketplace, you know, we kind of wash our hands when we come in to, the, to church. And we, because, you know, that's, I mean, that's all that stuff out there. We just stick with us. But compare that to literally the words that Mark records just before this in, uh, in, in, the, in the gospel of Mark. Um, Jesus and his disciples have been across the Sea of Galilee. And now this is what he writes. He says, and when they crossed over... They landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplace. And they begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak. And all who touched it were healed. Isn't that fascinating? When Jesus arrived, 
When Jesus arrives, the word goes out and people run and they get the sick and the needy and, the, and those who are hurting and they place them in the marketplace. And as Jesus passes through the marketplace, as he walks and interacts with people, they literally, if they're on the ground, they can't get up. They reach out and touch his robe and they are healed. It's, it's like wherever Jesus goes, wherever he goes, there are the sick and the needy and the hurting and he brings healing and, and wholeness and health into their lives. It's like, it's like as he walks through the market, marketplace, there's healing in his wings. It's a totally different way of approaching the world around him. Nothing about washing hands and staying away, but rather about engaging and being part of the world around him. And now that Jesus isn't here in bodily form, we have become the body of Jesus. We are his hands and his feet. We're the ones now who are to engage the marketplace of the world around us and to bring the healing of Jesus with us wherever we go. You know, Jesus said this. He says, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill, a, a church on a ridge cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the room. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's what we're about. That's what we're called to. That's what we're doing as a church. I mean, we've been doing it, but this fall we're going to continue to do it. This fall we're going to dedicate one weekend to serving the needs of the refugees in our, in our local area. There are uh, flooding into this part of our, our world uh, all kinds of refugees from the war in Ukraine. And many of them have left everything because of the war there. And they've come, some of them fairly large families, and they have nothing when they come. They, they have nothing to set up a house. And so uh, in early October, we're going to have a weekend where we're going to ask for people to donate all the things that you need to furnish a house. Tables and chairs and couches and, and um, you know, beds and dressers and and I mean, all of those kinds of things and cutlery and, and toys for children and, and, and bedding. I mean, whatever it is that God in his abundance has given us that we have extra of, we want to collect that and give it to these families because of what Jesus is doing. And so some of you are actually, you're, you're nudging, you're like, I think I just heard God tell me that, that we need to get a new couch so we can serve the refugees. Maybe he did. But, but, but I just want to say, like, just hold on a little bit. We're going to give you some more information. We want to serve them. But then also, on that same weekend, we're going to, again, invite you to give towards another refugee family that we are sponsoring from the Syrian war. And it's a little further back, but we're just as committed to, to those folks as well who, who uh, have been stuck because of being refugees and to, to supporting them so they can come to Canada. And then later in the new year, we want to we want to launch a tutoring program uh, in our church uh, for underprivileged children in our city uh, who are struggling in, in learning, in literacy. And we're working together with David Innes and the Vancouver Urban Ministries to set this up as a way to serve the needs in our community so that kids who are coming from underprivileged families that can't afford a private tutor could come to the church and to be tutored by someone that would help them under, learn better how to read and, and, and to, to do well so they can thrive in their education, so they can, can grow and be successful in all that is before them. And our hope is that this opens up all kinds of opportunities for us as a church to continue to love and serve the people in our community as we do this for these, these families. 
And if you have an interest in that kind of thing, I want to encourage you, just keep your, your, your ear to the ground. We're going to have an information meeting in October, early October. And maybe you're saying, yeah, I'd, I'd love to, I mean, or I'd at least be open to, to mentoring one or two, uh, mentoring to, to, to tutoring one or two children to, to help them learn how to read or to do some administration or to contribute to some of the costs of that kind of a thing so we can serve our community. If that's you, you know, keep your ear open. We want to invite you to join us in that. And of course, we carry on in, in serving with the hub and serving the homeless in our community, which we've done last year. We're going to carry on this year. And you know, our, our goal as a church, I mean, we want to be in the marketplace in our city, engaging the city around us and, and caring for the needs and not just people's physical and, and educational needs, but their spiritual needs too. Uh, this fall again, six weeks from now, once the craziness of sort of September is over, six weeks from now, we're going to offer a course that runs for six weeks called Starting Point. And this is a class, a course that we're going to have here on Sunday mornings, 9 a.m. till 10.15, just before church starts, for people who want to explore faith, who want to ask questions about what does it mean to know God? Who is God? What is Christianity all about? And it's like Paul did at the Ariagopagus. Oh, I can't. You know the word. At Mars Hill, right? We want this opportunity for them to be able to ask questions. And to debate and then to determine for themselves, what is it that, that this teaches and am I going to follow after Jesus? And so if that's you or if you know somebody that would be interested in that, you should keep your ears open. Because it's going to be an opportunity again as you gossip the gospel to say, come here, learn about this thing. We're going to engage the marketplace as a church, corporately, together. We want you to help us, to, to join with us. But the call isn't just for us together to do it, but also an invitation for you to do that in your own world. I mean, God has given you all kinds of personal relationships and a relational currency with all kinds of people that are unique to you. And the invitation is for you to also just, just gossip the gospel in your conversations with people. You know, so often we have this, this mindset that says, you know, you've got to do it all. You've got to, you, you've got to, introduce someone to Jesus and then explain what the gospel is all about and then answer every one of their theological questions and then ask deep probing questions and then lead them in a prayer to know Jesus. You, it's all on you. But that's almost never the case. At least usually it's not the case. Usually the call on you is just to do your part. You know, I love this email that I received from one of the guys in our community group. I, 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 I asked him, I said, who was the primary influence in your life when it came to, to following Jesus? And he wrote me back this email. It was so good. I asked him if, if I could share it with you. And he said I could. Here's, here's what he writes. He says this. Hi, Jonathan. This is a very difficult question to answer. There are a number of people in a web of God's design who were used very significantly in this process. My grade 11 high school chemistry teacher spoke about his Christian faith and how science and faith are not in conflict with each other. Christian friends of, a, of the family invited me to Green Bay Bible Camp where I came to know Jesus. Another influential person was a camper at the Green Bay Camp who came to my rescue and helped me move out of a toxic group of teens in my original cabin into a cabin of strong believers who loved the Lord. John Updegrove in my new cabin who talked to me and listened to me throughout the time at camp to lead me towards salvation. And finally, at the camp, a pastor who spoke to the group and made an invitation to receive Jesus, to which I responded. There were others who also played a role. My grandmother, whose faith wasn't strong, but was real. 
My mother, who wasn't a Christian, but who tricked me into going to the Christian camp. Many who prayed for me along the way and others who I have no idea about. Of course, the Holy Spirit who prompted and convicted me a number of times before then and showed me God's incredible creation and Jesus who interceded for me and graciously allowed for my prayers to be answered even though I really didn't know him yet. Bottom line, God doesn't just use one individual. He used a bunch of his children who are obedient and faithful in little ways along the path of salvation. Man, I love that email. I mean, I love that story. What a beautiful story. It wasn't just one person. It was each person who just did a little bit. You know, a science teacher who explained that faith and science aren't in conflict. They complement one another. And, and somebody who invited this guy when he was younger to go to camp. And somebody at camp who saw him in this sort of toxic situation and said, why don't you come run with us? You're welcome among us. And somebody else who, who listened to his questions and heard his concerns and, 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 and gave gentle answers. And, and someone else who made it possible for him to hear somebody explain the gospel. And then, and then a mother who tricked him to go to camp at a Christian camp. And a, and a grandmother who just had faith and, and others. And in the end, the Holy Spirit did it. But each person just did a little bit. Such a beautiful picture of what God is calling us to do. And you can do that. That's what he calls us. Not to do it all. Just to do the part that he has called you to do. And then God gets the glory. And all kinds of people come to know and find hope in Jesus. You know, one of, one of my friends here at the church continually reminds me that the people who drive by this building don't think about it at all. I mean, you know that warehouse that you drive by regularly? And you look at me like, no, I don't. Exactly. You know why you don't notice it? Because it just doesn't even clue into you that it's there. But even if you did notice the warehouse that you drive by every day, you wouldn't say, I wonder what's going on in there. I should stop by in the parking lot, knock on the door, go in and ask them what they're doing. You would never dream of doing that. The same here when people drive by this building. Maybe they notice that we've updated it. It's good that we've updated it. But that doesn't automatically cause them to say, I should pull in there and find out what's going on. No, no. The way that people are going to hear about the good news of what Jesus has done in our lives is when you and I and others like us go out and begin to gossip the message of the gospel. Just a little bit here and just a little bit there. And when we do this, is this kind of reverb thing that happens. It just kind of, kind of keeps moving out from this place as each of us does our part and people come to hear and to know about Jesus. Listen, our vision, our vision as a church is that our city would know Jesus. That means, that means you and I who attend this church regularly, that we would know him deeper and more fully and more completely. But our vision is much broader than that. That means that those of you who are here, who are, are courageously exploring faith, our, our, our vision for you, our prayer for you, is that you would find that faith to give you life and hope in Jesus Christ. But our vision is broader than that. Our vision is that our city, that in this city, that there are many, many people in this city who would come to know and believe in Jesus and that they would experience the kind of life that the Apostle John experienced when he came to know Jesus. That's what we're about. That, that's what we're doing. That, that's where we're going again this fall. 
but it's about us doing it together, about all of us and every one of us involved in this process, each person doing their part, that person doing his part and her doing her part and this person doing theirs and that person doing theirs. But you have to do your part, just a bit part, just a little part, but you have to do your part because it's vital to what God is calling us to do. But when we do it, oh, God's going to work. God, by his Holy Spirit, is going to move and change people's lives. And so I want to invite you today to ask God, what is that thing that I need to do? Who is it that God is putting on your heart? Says, And he's saying to you, you need to gossip into that person's life about me. Not some fancy presentation, just a little bit here and there. And for some of you, God is saying, you need to get involved around here. You, you need to step up. You don't have to do the whole thing. You just need to do your part. The gifting that God has given you in the ministries that we have in our children's ministry, in this ministry that we're starting for, for tutoring, in the, serving the homeless, in serving, you know, I mean, whatever it is, and say, okay, God, I hear you. I'm going to do it and commit to do it. Because we have this vision and God's going to work it as we're faithful to what he calls us to. Would you bow your heads, me? Let's pray. Well, God, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that, that he gives us life. God, that he gives us meaning and purpose and depth and, 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 and a way of seeing and understanding the world that is rich and deep and, and just as solid, more solid than any of the other worldviews out there. And God, we thank you that you've called us to know you through Jesus. And our prayer this day, as we launch into this fall again, as we step into this sort of this new season, Lord, is that we would be faithful to do what you call us to. Just the little part that you've called for us to do. God, that we would gossip the gospel. That we would, there'd be this enthusiasm that would flow out of our lives. That, that, that this excitement that says, oh, you wouldn't believe what God is doing. You, you, you wouldn't believe what he's at work in my life or in the lives of the people that we know or, or where he's working and where he's bringing health and wholeness, where there's healing in his wings. You, you got to know about it. You got to hear about it. And Lord, that as we do that, there would just be this, this reverb in our community that people would say, I hear it. I hear it. There's something going on. I want to know. And God, that many, many people would come to know Jesus because of it. And so God, this day we give ourselves to you we thank you for what you're doing and we can commit to follow you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, thank you for joining us today. For those of you who've joined us uh, online, thank you for coming and being part of what God is doing here today. I hope that you're encouraged and strengthened. I want to send you off with these words. Again, famous words from Jesus. The, 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 the last sort of words that he said to his disciples uh, after his resurrection, he said this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the ages. God bless you as you go and fulfill the mission that Jesus has given us. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.